Welcome back to Insights Unlocked. I'm thrilled to chat this week with CFA charter holder Monica Erickson. She's the head of investment grade corporate credit and a portfolio manager at DoubleLine Capital, one of the fastest growing and most prominent investment firms in the US. In addition, Monica is a huge proponent of diversification in the financial industry and is one of the founders of the Bloomberg Women's Buy Side Network. She's also on the educational committee of 100 Women in Finance. Both organizations provide education and community to women who are building out their careers in finance. Monica joins me today to shed light on the current dynamics and future outlook within the U.S. investment-grade credit market. Hope you all enjoy this insightful chat. Really appreciate you joining me today, Monica. I hope you've been well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to do this. And I have to say, you know, we both went to USC and I was very impressed with you as a student there reaching out to me. Um, you've reminded me a little bit of myself, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> Thanks so much for that. It means a lot. It means a lot. Um, before we kind of uh, dig into to corporate credit dynamics, I think it would be helpful to give uh, a brief overview of your background for listeners who may not know you already. And so could you kind of shine some light into your career path from Frohley Revy and TCW prior to DoubleLine, along with your current role at DoubleLine today? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, as you know, you and I both went to USC, and that was really where my path into finance started. I had a couple of really great professors there that um, really led me down the path of specifically finance and investments as opposed to something broader in business. And when I was doing some work at USC, one of the classes we did a four, well, we had a project where we we could basically do anything we wanted related to picking securities. And I chose to do um, a project looking at four different factors. And it was back when we didn't have really strong computers. So I think I did it on my Quattro Pro. And I <laughs> did some backdating and figured out that, that I came up with this four-factor model that had a pretty good predictability for future uh, equity returns. And there was a uh, an investor, George Froley, who knew about this. And that's how I started at Froley Reedy. He offered me an internship um, during my rising senior year. And then his partner, Andrea O'Connell, Andrea Reedy prior, offered me a full-time job. And it really came about because of this model that I had done at USC and because of the work that I was doing there. Um, so I started at, like you mentioned at the shop, Froley Reavy. it was a convertible um, asset manager. And I was there for about 15 years. And I, uh, my, my role there was as, as an analyst and I covered a bunch of different sectors. And it was a really interesting place to start because convertibles have aspects of equity, they have aspects of bonds, and then you also have to understand the derivative component of it. So it was a, a great place to learn. And I, I grew up there in the 90s looking at um, a lot of tech names, the internet, uh, was funded a lot of telecom. 
So as a young person in the industry, it was a super exciting place to start. And then I transitioned from there into investment grade corporates at TCW. I was there also as an analyst for several years. And then there was a group of us that decided to leave with Jeffrey Gunlock in December of 2009 to start DoubleLine. And I transitioned at that time. And again, I was I was an analyst when I started at DoubleLine and we were a small firm and there was a lot of opportunity. And I would say that as a firm, we are still relatively small compared to some of the behemoths out there. We have about 280 employees and we have a very entrepreneurial spirit and a very flat organizational structure. So while I started there as an analyst, there was a lot of opportunity for me to grow. And I eventually grew into the role of portfolio manager and then into managing the investment grade corporate team. Awesome. Sounds like it's been uh, an amazing journey so far. And so uh, now moving on to to the market uh, and, and the meat on the bone, I think, you know, a lot has happened since we last spoke. And so I think it would be helpful to kind of recap the events that have driven investment grade credit over the past year on a, on a higher level. And so LQD, the investment grade corporate bond ETF, is now down about 23% year to date and now trading below 2020 pandemic lows. And we've also seen over $114 billion of outflows from investment grade funds year to date. And so in your view, what have been the main factors driving the market right now? And how have things like duration, convexity, and credit risk evolved as this year has unfolded? Yeah, well, that's it, it has been the worst year in fixed income. I think uh, Deutsche Bank did a study back into the 1800s. So we have never had a year where total return has been this bad. Um, it has primarily been driven from the move in the treasury market. You know, we started from incredibly low rates. I think, you know, the front end was offering one or two basis points. Um, the, the 30 year has just gotten crushed. I think the 30 year treasury is down something like 35%. Uh, the long end of the credit market is down 28%. And if you look at what's really driven it, it has been the move in the treasury market. About 75% of the price action in investment grade corporate specifically has come, in, come from the, the moves in the treasury market with you know, yields going up, prices going down. The other 25% has been driven by spreads widening out. We also started the year with spreads at fairly tight levels. The index that I look at is the Bloomberg Credit Index. And we started that index started the year at 87 basis points over. So fairly tight. The average mm -hmm. is the long-term average there is call it somewhere around 120 basis points over. So well below what, what the long-term average would give you there. We are now at 137 basis points over the equivalent treasury on that benchmark. So a 50 basis point move there. Um, but back to this idea, this, this movement in the treasury market, the yield to worse, which is includes the, the spread and the, the treasury yield. So the all-in yield has moved dramatically in the investment grade corporate market. We started the year with a yield of two and a quarter. And as of today, we're yielding over five and a half percent. So that that is really where the pain has come from. And 
Historically, what we've seen in that type of a market is you get an inverse relationship with spreads and with treasury yields. And this year, we've seen the exact opposite, where treasury rates have gone up and spreads have gone up. So it's been a double whammy in terms of returns. Now, your question, you asked a couple of questions about convexity and duration. Um, the investment grade market specifically has a high degree of sensitivity to move in interest rates, i.e. it has a fairly, or at least started the year with a fairly long duration. It is right. the longest duration asset class in the, the, the Bloomberg Ag. And we started the year with a duration of over seven and a half. We're down to six and a half just because of the move in the market. Um, okay. But a lot of exposure to the move in, in the treasury market. So that's that is really why investment grade corporates in particular have gotten hit so badly. And then if you look at, at other types of markets and credit like high yield, they've actually done better, even though spreads are out more because they had less duration, i.e. the sensitivity to the move in the treasury market. Very intriguing. Awesome. So let's talk a bit more about the the factor of rates, right? And so rates have obviously been at the forefront driving the market. And, you know, the market was seemingly unprepared for Chair Powell's resolute hawkish warning at Jackson Hole. And so we've seen U.S. interest rates rise at an extremely rapid pace. And in fact, this is the fastest rise in global interest rates in 30 years, according to Fitch. But despite a lot of the uh, deep recessionary crash narratives that are, you know, spreading throughout social media this year, rate hikes haven't seemed to hit corporates and earnings as hard as many may have expected, at least not yet. And so we saw some bits of light at the end of the tunnel in Q2, anchored by, uh, you know, a huge 3x oversubscription for Meta's first bond sale. And so first, I think it would be useful to establish why, you know, corporates are holding up relatively well. And so I'm wondering, in your view, is this mainly attributable to corporates pushing out maturities during the low rate environment over the past two years? Or are there other factors at play here as well? Well, I think there's a few things. Um, I think that the way corporates have structured their balance sheets over the last, call it three years, really since since COVID started in March of 2020, um, corporations have been fairly um, uh, conservative, I would say, with their balance sheets, right? I mean, I think the, the scare that took place in March of 2020 really um, put uh, corporate and, and treasurers really, in particular, um, more on a defensive mode. So what we've seen there is, to your point, there has been, an, even prior to that, an extension of maturity. So there isn't this concern that there's some big maturity wall out there where companies right. need to refinance. Um, but also, I think there has been a pullback um, in terms of M&A, in terms of bigger payouts with dividends, um, share buybacks, those types of activities that bondholders tend not to like that that benefit the equity holders at the expense of the bondholders. So I think companies have been more conservative on that front. And then we're also coming off of an incredibly strong earnings period 
from you know the the depths of what we saw in 2020 20 last year was extremely strong and this year has been fairly strong as well what one of the factors contributing to the strength this year frankly has just been the inflation picture right so right. if you look at nominal top line growth and nominal earnings growth it, it actually looks pretty good um, companies have been fairly good at passing along their higher input costs, but on a real basis, it's probably, you know, flat or possibly negative. But if you're looking at it in terms of credit, you've, you've got your fixed debt and it is what it is. So, you know, in an in a inflationary environment like we're in right now, it's actually good to have debt on your balance sheet. Um, your, your, your debt stays the same and your nominal cash flows increase. So if you look at it, just general metrics overall on the benchmark, we, we improved dramatically through 2021 and we've kind of plateaued right now. And we're, we're definitely not at any kind of extreme levels We're we're just kind of middle of the road in terms of there are a couple of of standard metrics that investors in my space look at, for example, um, absolute debt to cash flow or EBITDA. Those mm -hmm. levels are hovering around three times, which is um, a fairly kind of average leverage number. And then interest coverage in terms of what companies are creating in terms of their cash flow to cover interest is still at extremely high levels because companies have financed their debt at these very low coupons. So interest coverage is somewhere around 20 times where prior it's, it's much higher than it has been prior and prior call it like in the in the 90s and 2000s, it was closer to five or six times because interest rates were much higher at that point and companies had financed at those higher rates. So if you look at, at kind of the overall health of the corporate environment right now, I would say it's neutral. We are starting to see some signs of a slowdown and there have been companies that have come out and lowered guidance. FedEx comes to mind. Um, about, I think it was on, it was either the 15th, 16th of September. Um, they pre-announced numbers, uh, they're, you know, it, it makes sense, right? They're in a highly cyclical business. Do you see companies slow down, um, what they're using in terms of, of FedEx's services and FedEx still has, um, fixed costs to cover, and they're not able to pass along those fixed costs and then their top line gets hit and those bonds you know traded 20 30 basis points wider the day that they announced and they've continued to to trade wider if you look at the the equity i think we're at, uh, close to a five year low if you don't if you exclude you know march of 2020 um the mm -hmm. equities crush. So there are, you're starting to see definitely companies come out and say that they're feeling the impacts of what the Fed is doing, i.e. raising rates, slowing the economy, um, and starting to see some slowdown there. So it's, you know, I don't think it's all uh, roses, but I think when you look in the aggregate, the market itself um, looks, I would say, neutral in terms of kind of fundamentals. 
Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And so I also want to get some 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 of your insights into the outlook here moving forward, as uh, we have quite a few moving pieces at play. And so inflation is at elevated levels compared to other cycles. There's no denying that with headline CPI at 8.3% in August, which is up 0.1% month over month, uh, while core CPI has actually increased uh, 0.6% month over month. And so this suggests that the Fed put or Fed pivot is still much farther out this time around until they can really get these dynamics under control. Um, But while inflation and other geopolitical events are affecting economic growth, there seems to be a divergence between economic growth and consumer health, as employment levels are still comfortably strong, um, while consumer balance sheets are maintaining high levels of saving and moderate amounts of leverage. And so there doesn't seem to to really be a clear path of how this cycle plays out. And so therefore, I'm wondering what you're expecting in terms of the next uh, 12 to 24 months within corporate credit. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with the path that the Fed takes. And I think the Fed has been um, very clear in that their primary goal right now is killing inflation. Um, And I think, you know, our kind of baseline is that the Fed will end up doing more than they need to. Um, I think our our, um, founder and CIO, Jeffrey Gunlock, has been very Mm -hmm. verbal out there discussing about Fed policy and that, you know, Fed policy acts with a lag. Um, We had this massive um, liquidity input into the system over the last year and a half that really drove, frankly, since March of 2020, that really drove the excess that we have in our economy right now and drove inflation. Um, So there was so much liquidity put into the system. Now the exact opposite is happening where liquidity is being taken out of the system um, with higher interest rates and at a incredibly fast and furious pace, right? Where you're getting 75 basis point increases at meetings. Um, And the expectation is for that to continue. And and like I said, you know, policy takes a while to go through the system. So, you know, our base case would be that if the Fed were to wait and let policy take place, let the economy naturally slow, we could see ourselves in a fairly mild recession next year. But our base case is that the Fed is going to continue on their path. I think that's really what they've messaged to the public. And I think they will continue. And if they continue raising rates at this point, I think the probability of us going into a much deeper recession next year is higher. And uh, Mm. Jeffrey was on um, CNBC a few, I think it was last week um, or two weeks ago, right after the Fed raised rates another 75 basis points, talking about um, a possibility of a uh, 75% possibility of a, a fairly deep recession next year. So if we do go into a recession next year, I think credit will um, be wider than it is today. I mean, credit credit spreads right now are not reflecting a recession. I would say, argue that you know, credit spreads at call it 140 over 
um, reflect a slowdown in some weakness, but not a recession. And I would think credit right. spreads would be closer to kind of the 200 to 20 level if we do go into a recession. And okay. I think there there will be there will still be credits that do well in that environment. And there will be credits that do worse in that environment. And then as active managers, that's really our role is to have a macro view. And our macro view right now is that we are going to go into a slowdown and the probability of a recession is, is higher than normal. So we would look for credits that would do better in that type of environment. That's how we would manage through this. But I think, you know, Overall, we would expect spreads to be wider. Um, what, one other thing I would note, having said that, we could see a rally in the Treasury market on the long end um, if if the if we do do have a recession or if we do have a prolonged slowdown. Um, uh, yields on the thirty-year, twenty-year could definitely rally from here. Um, the other point that we've been discussing with investors recently is, is that what we started with this discussion, we're now at a point where all-in yields are looking really attractive. You've got an all-in mm -hmm. yield in the investment grade market that's the highest it's been in 13 years. So, you know, your starting point is much better than you've had over the last 13 years. So while you might get some spread widening, um, you might also get a rally on the treasury, which would counterbalance that spread widening. And you're also starting from a point where you are actually getting some yield. So um, all in all, we're probably neutral, I would say, on credit um, in the kind of intermediate term. But over the longer term, we're actually positive because we are starting from this higher yielding place and we will eventually get through a recession and i think at that point spreads rally back in and um, you could have you know a nice if you're starting with a yield of five and a half percent you could maybe expect at least that return plus maybe another one or two percent on top of that right i'm also curious kind of relating to that point um on a broader level you know as you know tina tina has largely been the theme over these past few years during the ultra qe low rate period but you know with with the effective yield for AAA corporates now you know four to five percent would you say the the tina trade could largely be dead moving forward well i guess you know there it, that no longer holds right there is no alternative there is an alternative. You can actually get, uh, you know, a credit risk-free rate in the treasury market that looks pretty attractive at this point, mm -hmm. I would argue. I mean, if depending what your view is, you can, you know, get anywhere between, you know, four and four and a half percent along the curve. I think that's pretty attractive. And then, you know, if you do have a longer holding period, I think, Starting out with investment grades at five and a half percent looks pretty attractive. Um, you no longer have to take on excessive risk to get some sort of yield. So I think that acronym is 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 dead for the moment um, because there are alternatives. You don't you don't have to take on that extra risk. Um, so yeah, I think you know we we are we're. We're starting from a much more interesting point in terms of all-in yields, um, both in investment grade and just with the treasury market. So I think um, 
that is definitely a shift. And, you know, at some point we will start seeing money flow back into the sector. And, you know, you started, we started this conversation discussing about just how bad returns have been and how much outflow there has been um, in AUM uh, in the asset class. But you have to remember that this asset class, the investment grade corporates, is very institutional, meaning that they're, it's predominantly an institutional asset class. So mutual right. funds are fairly small. I think you know they're, you, you don't get a completely clear picture, but there are estimates out there because there's a lot of investment grade corporates that go into ag funds. So if you try to aggregate all of that, something like 15 or 20 percent. Um, of the market is in mutual funds. And the, okay. the other 80, 85% is institutional money. So pension funds, insurance companies, those, those types of accounts are interested in all in yields. And these type of yields are starting to look attractive to them. So um, I think that we will at some point start seeing an interest back in the market. You know, may, I think I think what's going to be required there is less volatility. Um, right. And that may be, you know, a few months out, but at, at some point the institutional buyer base will step in. And especially at these levels, I think it's starting to look attractive for them. Right. And so, you know, on, on, on the topic of, of volatility, um, as, as kind of financial conditions have continued to tighten, the uh, move index that measures volatility of bonds has been notably greater than equity volatility, at least for these past few months. Um, but equity vol, as measured by the VIX, has really ramped up quite a bit over the past month since Powell's commentary at Jackson Hole. And so although it seems like we could be well on our way to a major liquidity event if things continue at this pace, there hasn't yet been a you know violent market-breaking liquidity-driven sell-off in credit, and so it seems like investors are still very much pricing in the possibility of this risk. And so, how are you kind of analyzing current liquidity dynamics in credit and the effects of the boost in the Fed taper monthly cap now to ninety-five billion dollars per month that's starting this month in September? Yeah, well, I think it's all part of this extracting liquidity out of the system, right? It all contributes right. to um, a slower economic um, picture. It all, it's, you know, everything we've been discussing. And I think, I think that, that, you know, any kind of liquidity, that old saying, like, you know, don't fight the Fed is, is yeah. been so, is, such a, a profound statement over the last since really March of 2020, right? I mean, don't fight the Fed on the way where they're interested in putting liquidity into the system. We had, you know, a massive rally. You look to see what happened in terms of equity uh, price movement, in terms of spreads right after the Fed stepped in. I think it was like March 26th of uh, 2020. And, you know, that was a, a, one of the sharpest um, snapbacks we've ever seen. And that, you know, we're seeing the exact opposite right now, where the Fed is committed to lowering inflation. And frankly, they should be. I mean, you know, inflation is bad for everything in the economy. And it distorts mm -hmm. There's many distortions that happen because of it. 
um, and they're they're committed to lowering inflation. We we haven't seen these type of inflation numbers since the 1970s. Right. You know, so it's it, this pulling out liquidity out of the system, whether it's with higher rates or selling securities that they have on their balance sheet. I mean, you're starting to see some of that happen in Europe as well. Um, I think it all contributes to just more volatility out there, um, more spread volatility. I think, like I said, I think there is the, the, the chances of spreads going wider are greater here than they are going tighter. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it really comes down to what your time frame is. If you're looking out over the next three months, I would say that, you know, the, the yield that the all in yield that you're getting right now in the investment grade corporate market is is good. Um, but spreads could go wider. So you could see some price declines. But if your investment horizon is 12 months out, I think investment grade corporates are a good place to be, especially starting with a five and a half percent yield. And and, you know, that's on the benchmark. Like I said, there are there are certain securities out there that are going to do better and that are offering a higher yield right now that have better balance sheets. So as an active manager, I think you can go out and find things that are even more interesting than than just the benchmark itself. Right. That makes sense. And so, you know, another interesting thing to note in the IG market um, is that it seems as though the broader composition of IG credit is getting weaker. And so I'm wondering if that's something that investors should keep an eye on, especially if the Fed continues down this aggressive rate path. And so just for some context here for our listeners, um, since about 2012, there's been an increasing divergence within the composition of US IG credit. And so we've seen triple B rated corporates increase from about 35% of the market to now being 50% of the market, while double A AA and triple A's have fallen from 20% to just 10% of the entire market. And so, Monica, should we be worried that we're potentially going to see a flood of downgrades pushing them to junk in this cycle? And, and kind of what would you need to see to, to confirm that view of further deterioration? Yeah, and I think, you know, this is something we've been talking about for uh, oh, I don't know, 10 years now, I think, at least seven years for sure. You know, I mean, this this whole migration and, and your data is completely accurate. This whole migration and the, invest, the investment grade corporate market looked very different 10 years ago than it did today. Um, right. It's much larger today. Um, there are a lot more issuers than there were 10 years ago. And the issuers that have remained in the investment grade market and the new issuers have taken advantage of this low rate environment. And this has been, you know, an active move on their part um, to raise super cheap capital. So, you know, while before it may maybe made sense to remain single A if your cost of capital was much higher and especially moving down um, to a lower credit quality cost you more to raise funds, um, that hasn't been the case. And so um, companies have taken advantage of that. And there are many more triple Bs um, in the benchmark than there have been historically. Um, And I I don't think that that means that um, we're going to see some large downgrade cycle. That 
The triple B space has remained fairly constant at that 50% over the last, call it four to five years. Um, and again, it really has, this is something that, that companies have done actively to take advantage of lower rates. And, and the flip side of it is that it's, it's actually been a positive for the market because they've tended to issue longer dated bonds. And so there isn't this issue of this kind of uh, maturity wall to be addressed. Um, so I'm not concerned about a broad um, downgrade cycle, but I do think at the margin, you know, we have experienced over the last year and a half a fairly strong upgrade cycle, and I think that's for sure right. ending. And I think that there are specific credits out there that might find themselves in trouble if their cash flows drop significantly. They're for example, um, there are a couple of REITs out there that uh, are relying on the market in order to sell some assets and bring down debt. And if the market's not open for them to sell down those assets and repay their debt, there, there could be a possibility of a downgrade there. But I think it's more very credit specific. Um, I think the larger capital structures. AT&T is probably one of the largest capital structures in the triple B space, right. um, is in a fairly non-cyclical sector. And I think they're also, they've done, you know, several large transactions all committed to bringing down debt. So I think companies are very aware, especially the ones that have large capital structures, meaning they have a lot of bonds outstanding that they would have to refinance at higher rates are very aware of not dropping down into high yield because their cost of capital goes up so much. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that those these larger companies have many more levers to pull to remain in investment grade land. Um, in fact, we've seen some of the larger capital structures that got downgraded like a Kraft Heinz go back into the investment grade space. And I think Someone like Kraft Heinz is very interested in remaining investment grade. And so they're doing things to protect their balance sheet by having less, less uh, share buybacks, um, by really focusing on their operations, by focusing on their balance sheet to remain in investment grade. But um, I would say, and I think we were discussing this um, on a separate call, I think you were asking me if there are you know, specific sectors that are going to do better. Um, than others. And I think right. kind of that's where this comes in, that there, there really are um, sectors out there that are going to weather better through this economic slowdown or, or recession than other sectors. And that's really what we're focused on. Yeah, it makes sense. And so, yeah, let, let's get to the point of, of that and, and zoom in a bit into industry analysis within the market. And so, uh, you know, we've also seen signs of divergence of, of IG ratings across sectors. And so I'm wondering kind of which sectors do you think will be the most resilient and conversely, which are going to see heightened stress in this period? And so presumably cyclicals seem to be where, where some of the largest risks lie. Um, what other sectors would you avoid? And conversely, what's sectors do you think are the most resilient to current pressures? 
Yeah, well, and I think you hit on it. I mean, it's really cyclicals are are the you know the number one I think sector. Anything anything that's really tied into the economy and economic growth is going to do um, less well than companies that are not tied into economic growth. And you know, we brought up FedEx before, but I think FedEx is a perfect example of a company that that is tied into into what you know what businesses are doing what economic growth is and 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 therefore they're starting to see the pain i would say anything that's kind of related to housing i think that area is going to slow down um you're already starting to see you know real estate prices uh, decline pretty significantly. I mean, I'm I live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming right now, where real estate is is absolutely obscenely expensive. Um, but you know, we've seen I, I'm I get Zillow updates, and I see I've t- saw a price decline on a seven and a half million dollar house, uh, price decline of two and a half million down to five. So pretty significant, wow. you know, price declines there. So I I think you know anything kind of tied into that. Uh, we're avoiding. And then there are some sectors that we've been avoiding for quite some time and unrelated really to what's going on in the economy, more related to what um, their market dynamics are and their their kind of philosophy with their balance sheets. And pharma is one sector that we have been avoiding and we okay. will continue to be underweight. Um, we think there's just a lot of event risk there. Uh, pharmaceutical companies have been very acquisitive historically. They're very interested in um, shareholder returns, uh, a lot of share buybacks there. And they also don't offer a lot of spread to compensate you for that. So that's that's a sector that will continue to be underweight. Um, another sector I think to watch out for is a fairly new sector in our market. The business development companies, um, the BDCs have, uh, been, uh, fairly active. They, this year, not so much, but, um, up until kind of the volatility in our market, the BDCs were fairly active in issuing debt. And really their underlying business is buying bank loans of smaller companies, weaker companies. So I think there could be some more volatility and it's a fairly small sector, but I think there could be some volatility there. In terms of the sectors that we are overweighting, um, we still like U.S. banks. I think that, you know, from an equity standpoint, they may not be attractive, but a fixed income standpoint, their balance sheets right now are pristine. They have a huge okay. amount of equity cushion to absorb any kind of losses. And I think the they basically at this point are just like regulated utilities. There's so much regulation there um, yeah. because we, you know, the, we, we, we just don't want to see what happened back in 2008 ever happen again. So the regulators have been uh, very stringent with capital requirements with the bank. So from a fixed income standpoint, um, they look very attractive. And in addition to that, they offer a lot of spread. There's a, a technical reason why they offer spread. They, they tend to be very frequent issuers in our market and they are a large part of our market. So um, most investors are fairly full on banks when they come to market. So they have to come with fairly wide um, spreads compared to what an equivalent credit might offer. So 
we're happy to to take that carry and feeling very comfortable with with kind of the credit risk there. Um, some other sectors, I think kind of the obvious ones and non-cyclical ones are like aerospace defense. Um, believe it or not, the rails tend to do very well when the economy is slowing. They continue to, to carry products um, and they are fairly conservatively um, funded and their balance sheets are fairly strong. That's another okay. space to, I would say, to focus on. Um, and then uh, electric utilities. Um, there's there they they definitely have some issues. I think California has some specific issues with the utility sector, but right. there are some good electric utilities, and that's that is is um, one of the least cyclical sectors that you can invest in. I and mean, people need to keep their lights on. People pay their utility bills. Um, and if they're operating within a good uh, uh, rate framework, they're able to pass along their costs. So that's another sector that that we're focused on. And then another large sector that we're just neutral on is energy. And that's, you know, right. we've seen oil prices fluctuate recently. Um, and it's very difficult to have a strong opinion one way or another of where energy prices are going. So that's a sector where we just tend to be neutral and try to find the, the companies within the energy sector that we think are going to outperform. Perfect. Very useful information. Well, thanks again for your time today, Monica. Really appreciate it. You know, a lot of great insights that I'm sure our listeners will appreciate as they continue to try and navigate this interesting time within, within the markets. Yeah. Well, good luck out there and thank you uh, so much for having me. It's fun doing these and, Again, uh, thanks. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks a lot, Monica. Take care. All right. You too. Take care. Bye.